Heavy Cardboard, Episode 38, Mombasa. Coming to you from unseasonably warm Denver, Colorado, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. And I am Tony. Edward, tell folks how to contact us, please. All right. First off, on Twitter, at Heavy Cardboard. Our Facebook page, Heavy Cardboard. We love getting email from y'all. We love interacting with you. So please hit us up. Our email is contact at heavycardboard.com. Our website, heavycardboard.com. You can go and get our podcast there. Listen to it there on the site if you wish. Last but not least, BGG Guild number 2044. Constantly great conversations going on there, and half the time we're not even involved, so it's a great community that uh, is building up, so come be a part of that. The wonderful iTunes reviews that have come in since last episode were a good start towards 100 by the you know new year that we're hoping for, and maybe get us onto the front page of the Games and Hobbies podcast page. Those that helped out this uh, past couple of weeks are Brio4, Insightful Comments, Mo from TBG, hey Mo, Scotty B, and No God. Thanks y'all, and please keep them coming. We got 18 more needed this year to get to 100. Help us help you help us. Yes, indeed. It's fun to read those things too, man. Right, always. Uh, some of these are just, just truly will make your day, you know? Absolutely. It's great to see. Heavy Cardboard wants to thank the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have a fantastic reputation and a great inventory of games, including many imports and hard-to-find games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices, so check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. Email them at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. Speaking of Game Surplus, we have a a giveaway for you all. We're giving away a copy of a clever little tile lane logistics game that got a lot of buzz at BGG Con. And the name of that game, King Chocolate. So Sweet. thanks to Game Surplus for making that available for us to give to y'all. So to qualify for the contest, you just have to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and email us the three games or designers that you'd like us to review slash interview in 2016. Simple as that. Contact at heavycardboard.com and basically you have through the new year to email that in to us and uh, we'll randomly draw one and get that out to you. Think of it as extending the holiday. Well, uh, it'll be out to you sometime in early uh, early January. Now, can you and I play King Chocolate before we send it off to the contest winner? Absolutely, since I'm getting my own copy. So, oh, yes, okay, okay. we well, certainly uh, can. All right, cool, cool. <laughs> So uh, what's going on in your world? Well, um, actually not a lot. It's kind of a nice downtime this time of year for us. Work is pretty slow, but it you know ebbs and flows in, in the aviation industry. It's just nature of the beast. So I don't have a ton going on personally. It's all either podcast related or, or just gaming related. So I guess first world problems, you know? Uh, so first off, we've tentatively planned out the next five to six months worth of shows for the podcast, which 
I'm relieved by. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good thing. You know, it gives us something to work towards. I mean, they're written in mud, but at least it gives us some points to aim for. And, and with the contest and, and the listeners' ideas and suggestions and everything, these may change, obviously. But, yeah, it's, I think it's a good plan, and it's, it's good to have direction for us. Totally. So Heavy Con's about, give or take a little bit, 60% booked up. So that's coming along nicely. I'm excited about that. Uh, let's see what else we got. Oh, t-shirts. Yeah, I forgot. We, we got our new t-shirts that are up online. Uh, we have two different colors with the same design. Go check it out at heavycardboard.com forward slash loot. And there are two colors. There's red and blue. Uh, they're 25 bucks plus uh, a couple bucks for shipping. Um, it helps us out with the show. They're nice tri tri blend. Oh yeah. Uh, they're, they're super, super sweet. They're dude. They're, it, let's put it this way. I have two heavy cardboard shirts, and I have one from my wife's work that is also a tri-blend. When I'm lounging around the house and comfortable and whatever, those are the only three t-shirts I wear because they're so soft and comfortable. <laughs> hey, do we have any hoodies left? Uh, we have a couple, um, and we're actually talking to the same people that are do the screen printing and all that for the t-shirts. They're going to quote us some numbers for embroidery to get more made, so stay tuned on that aspect. Right on. Speaking of helping the show out, uh, Patreon, since it is the season of giving, it seems either this is a really great time or a really horrible time to yeah. think about starting on uh, our Patreon uh, you know, thing, whatever you want to call it. Um, so look for it in the next couple of weeks, and I'm sure you'll, you'll hear us talking about it here when it drops, whenever it goes live. So help us help you help us type thing. Right on. Uh, let's see a couple more things. Uh, so I'm not playing as many games as I want to play because sometimes I just, I get lazy and just, eh, I don't want to play games. Yeah. Or, you know, 12 in a week's not enough for you. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're going to try something and we're going to, on non-recording weeks, we're going to have three game days slash game nights, whatever here at the house Thursday. Saturday and Sunday, with Sundays being Wargamer 18xx exclusive. Now, when I say here at the house, obviously your house as well, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll see how it goes. We'll see if we have enough people that are interested in playing games more instead of just Saturdays. So that we'll see how that works. Um, oh, one other thing I almost forgot. Uh, we were asked to be guests over on our buddy Paul Grogan's podcast, Gaming Rules. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, we were talking about the highs and lows of Essen games thus far. And, and I think it went well, and it was cool to chat with him. So go check out his, his accent. Yeah, right? Seriously. Very <laughs> English. Very. Uh, go check out his show. It runs, I don't know, what, 20? I guess this episode ran long, so it ran about 35 minutes. But normally about 20-minute range. It's perfect for a single commute, so go check them out, Gaming Rules. And last but not least, the people have been asking me about the 2016 Anticipation Geek List, and I've decided, yeah, I am going to get it going right around Christmas time, so look for it then. That's all I got. What about you, man? Uh, just a couple things. This is our, our Christmas episode. It is. Because no they won't hear from us until uh, after uh, the first. I'm, I'm hoping you have like jingle bells or like a sleigh in the background or something oh, yeah, we'll here. Do, you know, we'll do something music, uh, right, rock Christmassy. Normally, I'm I'm kind of bah humbug. but uh, Kind of? Stop. <laughs> Be honest with the listeners, dude. Come on now. It's definitely more important to uh, you guys. 
Uh, so, but anyway, Merry Christmas, listeners. Yeah, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, which actually ties in later on here. So, uh, let's see, for this Christmas, there are going to be nine friars from out of town, ages 18 to eighteen months to 75 years, uh, invading my house for the holidays. Now, so, um, uh, does that I don't know, I might, that... I might come over to your house a lot. <laughs> you are more than welcome. Paul Chad will be here. Uh, does that, that doesn't include you and Robin. What about Jess, your daughter? Yeah, so uh, those nine, plus me and Robin, Jessica and her... Uh, boyfriend, uh, Chris and his wife and the grandson. I mean, at, at any one point in time, <laughs> we're going to have a metric ton of friars in this house. God bless you. Yeah, you, we have a spare bedroom, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and plenty yeah. and plenty. I got the drink. liquor cabinet exactly. uh, stocked up. <laughs> so, uh, last thing for me is I, I heard of something today at, at work. Um, the, our little uh, office part got a email about this today. And I think it was a really cool little idea that a local coffee shop is doing in our office park Wednesday of this week. So the day after this podcast comes out, day they're before. having their second annual barter, barter day. And so here's their, their rule for the day. Cash is not accepted. Bring something to trade for your coffee, like fruit, a book, a poem, a nugget of wisdom, a couch, whiskey, anything goes. That's awesome, dude. I, I expect to hear really good stories of the types of stuff that gets traded. That, that is sounds awesome. so fun, man. I'm, so I'm going to go over there and barter something. I don't know what yet, but uh, going to get me some coffee for uh, some other gift. You have plenty of buttons in that front area there that you can. Yeah. Here's buttons. Here's a bag of buttons. Can I have some coffee? You could you could use them to pimp patch your copy of Patchwork. Not you. I'm saying the the, the baristas there to at the, the barista. Shop. Yeah. 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 That's cool, so, dude. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah, I'm anxious to hear about that. Very cool. All right, Tony. Yes, so uh, with the Essence season coming to an end, anything that you've acquired recently? I have acquired two things, both uh, in relationship to the Christmas holidays. Oh, very, very Yeah, thematic. see, I'm not all bah humbug. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, yes, but, you are, because you, you acquired Well, not you. really. I, I got uh, a copy of Vault Wars. And uh, so if you've ever seen the TV show Storage Wars, it's yeah. like that, but with a fantasy theme. And it's got actually a really neat auction mechanic where you can – it's a once around, but you can get back in. So once you pass, you're not – you're never out. So you can always raise prices later on and after you see the feel. It's uh, it's going to be pretty cool. But, you know, you know, my kid, uh, Chris loves auctions. And, and so uh, and that's going to be uh, like a family game that we can all play and have a good time with. And then uh, with my brother coming out, you know, he's a, a noted war gamer. Um, and so I grabbed uh, Waterloo, uh, excuse me, Napoleon the Waterloo campaign, that fourth edition Columbia Games block war game. So uh, I played uh, second edition back in the day, really enjoyed it. Um, in fact, uh, tonight I just printed out my second edition battle boards to try to use them with fourth edition because the fourth edition battle boards are, are gorgeous, but... Not nearly as functional as these. <laughs> you know? As far as the information that yeah. it conveys or doesn't convey, yeah. as it were? Yeah, for like when, you, when your blocks actually engage in battle, you move them off the big map onto the little map and, and duke it out. It's uh, it's pretty awesome stuff, man. And, and my brother and I are both Napoleonic nuts, so it's going to be fun. And I'm not, but you showed it to me, and I'm I'm game. It's a Columbia you know, block war game, so you know I'm willing to right give on. it a go. What about you? What have you acquired? 
Well, uh, one thing just uh, arrived today, and then there were two that I, I surprisingly got on Saturday. Um, so the thing that came today were the, I say, replacement boards, in quotes, for Arkwright. They're not boards. They're, they're free stickers. They're board-sized stickers that you can put over your, your uh, cardboard boards right. in Arkwright. Got them for free from Fun Again. Because that is the Spielworks, uh, like their U.S. distributor. Right. Uh, You peel off the back and you can put it onto the actual Arkwright board. And that takes care of the little printing error, which it's really a non-issue. But it's there. All all I had to pay was like $3 in shipping or whatever it was. So that was cool. Yeah. And then um, both you, uh, it, it was the Tony Day of Giving on Saturday, I guess. Because both you and Tony Kr decided, hey, Edward just rearranged his game library, got everything in perfect spot. Let's give him two games that don't hey, fit. That's so how, that's I appreciate how we, uh, no. That's how we get that, yeah. <laughs> no, it was awesome. So you you gifted me a copy of the U.S. Civil War, which I am super super excited. A complete about. with a leak. Got to the t- yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that yours didn't come with it, but at least GMT finally yeah, responded yeah. And, and had some fun with it on Twitter with you today. The other game that the Tony KR uh, gave me was uh, Stefan Feld's Speicherstat. And because he knew that I, I, you know, been wanting it and just never got around to getting it. And he's like, here, I, I'm never going to play it without you guys. So here. And I was like, wow, thanks, dude. That was... Uh, it was unexpected and very yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I totally so that was, dig that, that was, game. I, I really, really enjoy it. You and I both. And Amanda does as well, for that matter. <laughs> so what about, what about what you're hunting and anticipating? Well, still on this buying mori, uh, moratorium. Sure. Boy, I can't talk tonight, Ooh, which is bad when you have a podcast. Yeah. You know? So we're on this moratorium of buying stuff, but I am looking forward to hearing people's uh, feedback there's a game coming out. It's a World War One strategic war game uh, called The Lamps Are Going Out, published by Compass Games. There's just not a ton of information out there. There's some examples. Uh, it's a card-driven game, so there's some examples of the cards. And I've seen a picture of the map, but that's really it. But it's it's up for pre-order on Compass Games, and I, it should be coming out soon. So I'm curious to hear... What the feedback is on this, and because World War One and strategic, yes, please. So that's it. I mean, obviously, there's going to be stuff in the 2016 anticipation list, and we got you know Hands in the Sea, Forged in Steel, and all these other games that are coming out. But oh, one more actually, real quick, Trakirian. I got my shipping notice the other day, and I got an up. I got an update today saying it has arrived in Denver, so it's probably going to deliver tomorrow. So yay, I'm excited to drool over the uh, how pretty that is. All right, so how about you? Uh, well, uh, I've decided that it's finally time to have 18 Arden in my collection. So after the first of the year, sometime I'm going to get that going. And that made me think about, hey, where where's that 1880 reprint? So I uh, I emailed Lonnie and he was very uh, noncommittal. He 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 basically said soon. <laughs> so, well, so, on that note, somebody asked uh, on BGG about eighteen forty four, eighteen fifty four. Oh the, yeah, the the O and O reprint of those, the combined game, 
and uh, they said they're just still not happy with the the status of the rule book. So it's it's been supposedly been coming for a year and a half, two years, and still nothing. Well, let's see. Let's roll into the games that we've been playing. Yep, lead us. Well, sir. let's see. Mombasa, obviously. Shocker. Eighteen forty nine. I got to play that. Wow, uh, that's a pretty tough and challenging game, actually. Not as brutal as I was led to believe by some uh, accounts and comments on BGG, but okay. um, it did kill one player. So I guess <laughs> um, U.S. Civil War. By the way, that was the only game I played last weekend. This weekend, the only game I've played other than Mombasa was uh, U.S. Civil War. But hey, if you're gonna only play one game in a day, you know, get a quality war game. Well, in dude, there, just right? you know, all those games that we've we've played, um, I've got a lot of bang for the buck in terms of a game for hours there. And uh, I, I really enjoyed our play of Civil War at your house yesterday, man. I could definitely see the lineage from the old Civil War games. Um, it was it was a ton of fun, man. We played that 1861 scenario, really, really super enjoyable. And last thing I played was uh, something that you brought over to the house the other day, Visby. Yeah. So what? So well. Uh, so Visby, uh, I picked it up on a whim just because it was less than ten bucks, and it's from the same designer as Arkwright. It's uh, Stefan uh, Reisthaus, and it comes in a little tiny little Ziploc bag. Uh, has very few components, just some cards, a couple of counters, and a little like the 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 Visby the 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 front sticker like looking thing for the front of the bag on the inside on the other side that's the board um so it's just a kind of a almost like a a game of bluff and a game of chicken on what cards people are going to play against one another and i know that you know that i know that you know that you're going to play you know your knights this plus there's a memory element about what you can recall that the other person has played already yeah it i mean it was pretty cool for a little ten dollar game uh the only downside is i found out the day after we played it because we had mentioned oh we played it two player because the the initial pack only comes with enough components to play two player if you want to play three or four or five or six players you have to buy expansion packs just more components well i found out the day after we played it's out of print at least here here in the states there there are some across the pond uh, I contacted Stefan Reisthaus and said, hey, uh, do you have any any more? And he's like, yeah, we do. I'll send you some. I was like, oh, thank you. Cool. Good deal. So I have a couple of expansion packs on the way. Cool. But, um, but yeah, I think it's really going to be a fun little filler, thinky filler game for three, four players. I think five or six might be a bit chaotic. But, yeah. So, I mean, I thought it was worth trying. And we're checking out more. So for me, yeah. games that I played, okay. obviously, uh, obviously, Mombasa Civil War with you and the fellas. Uh, then I got a bunch more gaming. And other than that, we on Saturday we also played Operation Maccabee, which I'm going to be talking about here in a bit. Visby played German Railways, played that four player that went really really well. Uh, Pie Mal Flaumann hit the table. The Climbers, which always makes me happy, even though I'm terrible at it. Uh, the uh, the Dr. Reiner Knizia game of money. And last but not least, we got a play of the new Through the Ages, 
which I was super, super excited to play. We played it four-player, which is still a mistake. Don't do that. Uh, it's a two- or three-player game still. But the changes that were made, um, I'm far from an expert on that game, so I defer to what other people have said. But the artwork and just the way the, the game flows and the graphic design, all are steps in the right direction and highly recommended. So really, really enjoyed our, our game of uh, Through the Ages. That's it. That's all I've been playing. All right, Tony, let's, and by let's, I mean you. Why don't you talk a little bit, uh, some Alhambra. Yes, sir. Learn me, because I've seen the box. That's all I got. Alhambra is a 2003 design by Dirk Henn, and it, this is a game of very simple mechanics that come together and form what I think is uh, a, a pretty fun gaming experience. It's a two- to six-player game takes 45 to 90 minutes, depending on the player count, to accomplish a game. What's going on in the game is, well, you're managing four different currencies with which you're going to purchase buildings to construct your Alhambra. And in so doing, you'll be drafting those currency cards, managing your hand of currency cards, and purchasing buildings with specific currency, and then doing a little tie laying to get those buildings into your Alhambra. So before we go further, what the heck's an Alhambra? Well, the Alhambra, I should say, is a palace and fortress complex that's in Granada, Spain. And I guess it was built, uh, you know, in, in like 889, according to Wikipedia, and uh, kind of got run down and, and ruinated until a Moorish emir in the 13th century, the emir- in the Emirate of Granada, because, you know, the Moors took over a lot of Spain, or the Moops, if you will, and uh, anyway, he rebuilt the palace and to its current grandeur and everything. And so as players, we're basically taking on the role of that emir and rebuilding the Alhambra into a, this uh, grandiose palace complex. So basically, on the beginning of each player's turn, the board is going to have four different buildings that are randomly drawn from a bag. And each one of those buildings is placed on one of four places on the board that indicate the currency type that must be used to purchase that particular building. The price of the building is on the tile itself, though. And there are six different kinds of buildings, each one with its own color. Those currency cards, there's four different kinds, and they're, they're in a big giant deck of them. And there's always four of those available on the board, too. And they have various denominations, one to nine, etc. And you're going to be drafting those currencies into your hand to be able to spend on buildings. So on your turn, you could basically do one of these things draft one of those currency cards into your hand. But if the value is not greater than five, you can actually take multiple cards. You can also buy a building that's on offer by paying at least the printed value of that building in the correct currency. So for example, a building might cost seven blue money. But the game doesn't give change. So if that building costs seven blue money and you paid 12, well, too bad. However, if you pay the exact change, you can take another turn. And this is where Robin just just kills me. Before I know it, I'm looking at her. She's got this, like, handful of currency cards, and she's buying all four buildings and putting them in our Alhambra and just wrecking my plans. But when you buy one or more of those buildings, you can add those tiles into your, into your Alhambra, and there are specific rules about how to place your tiles. For, for example, they can't be rotated. All the tiles have one orientation. And this matters because most of the tiles have one to three wall sections drawn on them. And that obviously affects their placement because you can't put walls against non-wall sides and, you know, various things like that. 
So the game has three scoring rounds. Eventually, one of the two scoring cards in the currency deck is going to pop up, and the players are going to score their Alhambras. You get one point per section of contiguous, excuse me, of your longest contiguous wall. And then the buildings are going to score by colors. So in the first scoring, the player with the most buildings of a particular color is going to score X points. There's no second or third place. But in the second scoring, there's a second place as well as a first place. And the points went up. In the third scoring, there's a first, second, and third place. And the points went up. The game ends when you don't have enough buildings to replenish the four on the back, uh, on the board. And that that's, triggers the third scoring, and the most points wins the game. I think what's kind of cool about Alhambra is, um, number one, it's a, it's a good family game. Very, uh, very well received by, by my family. I really dig the different currencies that you have to collect, and I like having to use the different currencies. It definitely poses a challenge for me in the game, <laughs> especially when especially when Robin's playing. Indeed, and the way that the currencies combine with the building price and which currencies required to build a building is a, is a really a good mechanic. Actually, placing tiles and building your Alhambra, well, that that's kind of the hook for me because I just adore spatial tile laying mechanics. Big fan of tile laying as well. Yeah, and because of that one orientation thing we talked about and the walls, it, it can be challenging where you're just trying to manage your placement and what you're going to buy so you don't cut off possibilities. Because one thing that's going to suck is you can't buy buildings because you have no place to put the ones that are available, you know. And lastly, the expansions, but we're going to talk about those in a second. Definitely, this is a game that has some random elements to it. Obviously, drawing money cards and put them on the board and drawing buildings out of the bag. But it doesn't bother me. This this is really a lighter game. That would be unacceptable in Arkwright. It's wonderful in Alhambra. Okay. Uh, for my personal taste, I believe that this is best at two or three players. When you have uh, more than that, it really gets, uh, I, I think, too long. And you really can't take stock of anything on the board because if you're the fifth player... Everything's going to be different by the time it comes yeah. around to your turn. Sure. I think, you know, Robin and I have played it numerous times, two-player, and it's, it's, it's very good and very tight. So two or three is my recommendation. Well, yes, this game does have a, a metric ton of expansions, and, so, and we've played most of them. And there's a few that we consider keepers, and I just wanted to call those out, too. Number one is Queenie Number 1, the Magical Buildings. This is a promo release. The buildings in this promo can be turned to any orientation. And those are the only ones that can do that, right? Yes. Okay. So those are very popular when they See, come See, I out. listen. Right on. Queenie number two, the Medina buildings. This is brand new promo that, that recently came out. And what's neat about those is, you, sure, you get points for having the most, but you also lose points if you're having the least. So losing points is not very popular. So those buildings uh, go fast. We like that one a lot. In the Vizier's Favor, we play with... Uh, the bonus cards, the bonus building cards, basically each player's dealt a card. And if you happen to be able to get that particular building in your Alhambra, the card, you can reveal that to count as an extra one of that building type when it comes to determining majorities. For, for scoring. scoring, right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's a little nothing, but it's kind of cool. The currency exchange is, is very cool because, you know, you cannot mix currencies in the game. But with the currency exchange... There are cards that allow you to mix various currencies in your purchases. So it's very cool. It helps the game move along as well. Okay. The City Gates, they have a, another 
module in that expansion called diamonds. And basically, it's a fifth currency, but it's a universal currency. So if I have 10 diamonds, I can spend that as blue, as so orange, whatever. So they're wild currency then, right? Yeah. Okay. Still, you can't combine them. But, again, helps the game move along because I can now purchase whatever I want with those things. The Thief's Turn has a module called Change, and uh, that introduces change into the game. So if I did overpay, I would get change back from the game instead of losing that money. But you randomly draw the change out of a bag, so you don't know what you're going to get. It could be any of the colors. But here's what's really weird about it. We don't actually own this module. Robin and Jessica had this idea of making our own coins and having some of them two-sided. So that cuts down on some of the random. Oh, so, so I got to draw two coins out of the bag. One might be yellow on both sides, but the other might be orange on one side and blue on the other. Okay, it's actually it gives you a little cool, flexibility man. there for the yeah. to uh, mitigate the random. Okay, the uh, the treasure chamber expansion is one we play with, where it's got three treasure rooms full of treasure chests that you buy and place on your buildings. It's and they score a majority thing too. It's very very cool. You were actually. kidding about the number of these expansions. Oh oh my dude, this is twenty uh, percent of the expansions that are available. Most of them, in in our opinion, are eh, whatever. But these are the good ones in, that we that we think anyway. The power of the Sultan. This is our favorite one. The, the new valuation cards, because the game is always the same, right? Red buildings are worth this. Purple buildings are worth that. But with the new valuation cards, you actually change the valuation of the scoring from game to game and round to round. So it really got you got to keep on your toes about uh, what buildings you're acquiring and uh, when they're going to be worth the most. So it's pretty cool. We, we actually don't think we'll play without that one. All right. So anyway. I've played the game dozens of times. It's definitely one of the wife's favorite games. It's definitely on the lighter side as well. Um, but it's still one of my favorites of that uh, of that lighter weight class. There's nothing exceptionally challenging, and everything comes together in a very, very fun way, though. And, and the expansions really make it for us, how they let us customize various aspects of the game to our personal gaming tastes. Let me ask you real quick. Being sure. ignorant to the game, there is an Alhambra big box, right? And I assume yeah. that has... All these expansions in it? It's got expansions one through five, each one of which has four modules. So in it. 20 expansions in it? Yeah, but they've since come out with expansion number six. Oh. Okay, well, I just figure um, for the listeners, yeah. you know, somebody yeah, that absolutely. might be interested. So, like, if you're looking for a game of this weight class and you like the tile laying mechanics and card drafting, give this older, older title a try. For me, I'm going to give it a rating. I've played it a billion times. Without the expansions, it's a three. With the expansions, it's a five. You can create the game environment that you enjoy most. So give it a try. That's Alhambra. I want to hear about this Operation Maccabee thing that I, I heard about. And uh, there was even some uh, periscoping thereof, right? Oh, yes, yes, there was some periscoping of this. What the heck? All right, so Operation Maccabee, designed by Flaster Siskin and published by what I imagine is his company because it's called Flaster Venture LLC, published in 2010, plays one to four players and plays in about 45 minutes or so. So growing up, one side of my family was Jewish and I grew up playing with dreidels, you know, during Hanukkah. And it is Hanukkah right now, so this this seemed like the right time to break this game out for the first time. 
So playing with the dreidel, it has, you know, the four, it's basically a four-sided die that spins. It's a top that's a four-sided die, in, in, for lack of a better way to, to put it. It gets boring after spinning a dreidel for a while, right? Um, yeah, like so, 10 seconds. Right. So what's, as a kid, what's a way to, to perk that up? And that's, you know, spinning a dreidel and trying to knock down army men. That made it considerably more enjoyable, and it has to be where the designer got his inspiration from basically doing the same thing as a kid. So the cover of the box gives the impression that it's a war game in some respect, but it's not. It's a war-themed dexterity filler spin-and-move game. I think the best way to describe it is it's a clean, gore-free version of Inglorious Bastards, the game. So each player takes control of either the U.S., French, British, or Russian forces, and by spinning the dreidel each turn, moves his marker on a hex-based map to cross terrain and attempt to go liberate various concentration camps, which are located all over the map. So this has a really heavy theme, you would think, but it totally turns that on its ear. (laughs) When a player reaches one of those concentration camps, the real fun begins, which is such a weird phrase. Wow, that. yeah. <laughs> on the underside of the box lid is a round target. On the edge of that target, the players are going to place nine plastic Nazi camp guards and then spin the dreidel, attempting to knock down all nine of the guards over the course of a number of spins. In addition, depending on what side the dreidel comes to rest, you either score additional, you may skill you may score additional kills of guards. If a player succeeds by knocking out all nine of the guards, they get the camp marker, which has a hidden amount of camp prisoners that you've since liberated. After all the camps have been liberated, players add up the number that they have freed individually, and you have the winner of all winners. Because, let's face it, freeing any amount of camp prisoners, you know, victory makes you feel good, you know? So, what's cool about the game? Well, dude, you're killing Nazis with a dreidel. I mean, <laughs> come on. It's funny. This was like the the one of the first 10 games that we bought when we were in the hobby cuz really. Yeah. Um I think it was on a Tanga deal. And it was like for 5 bucks or whatever this game or whatever. And I went back and I looked at the comment that I left on this back in 2012. And it said, dude, you're killing Nazis with a dreidel. (laughs) Yeah. So on top of that, you get to draw cards, right, throughout the uh, play of the game. Two of which types of cards are grenades and snipers. Grenades, you toss the dreidel underhand. Well, you have to start your hand on the table. And then moving only your wrist... You have to toss the dreidel underhanded into the box lid and try and, you know, knock down some of the some of the guards. But for a sniper, you get to do it overhand, again, moving only your wrist. So, yeah, it's silly, but really fun. Talking dexterity now, game here. It, it really is. I mean, that plus your ability, how well can you spin the dreidel and, and control it and make it spin where you want to spin. So I hesitate to use the phrase party game given the theme, but it really kind of is. Even though it's supposed to be a competitive game, everyone is cheering each other on, hoping for good spins and for the camps to be liberated. In the end, 
you feel good at the end of the game. You likely laughed, you cheered each other on, you liberated concentration camps. Hard not to feel good at the end of that, right? <laughs> yeah. So now here, something else that may be cool, and tell me, what, what do you think on this, Tony? But I don't have kids. But for those that do, I wonder if this might be like a good way to segue into easing, you know, kind of ease into explaining the horrors of the Holocaust with kids. You could use this as a as a jumping off point, I'm saying, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't feel qualified to comment on that, but I don't know. It seems like a a game might not be the right thing. I don't know. Fair point, but I I thought it'd be a a safe environment in which to do it is what I mean. So some things that might not be cool about it. Um, So the fun all comes in the Nazi killing rampage. You get to go on with a dreidel. (laughs) <laughs> the map the map movement and such is kind of eh whatever you know sure let's all get to the camp so we can actually spin the dreidel and kill nazis um but for some it's possible that they might see this as making light of a terribly serious subject i don't think it c- comes across that way and i don't think that's the designer's intent um but some might be more sensitive to this sure. than others obviously but in the end, it's a quirky, weird little game that I'm fairly certain, if you had a copy of it, would attract interest, you know, once it's on the table. And it makes for interesting conversation and some legitimate goofy fun. Like you said, we periscoped our whole play of this, and we had people just riveted watching us do this and cheering <laughs> on the dreidel and all that. It was it was just, it was silly, goofy fun and and I think that's what the designer had intended. So, yeah. Right and it's it's available for like 10 or 15 bucks uh, from different places on the internet, plus on BGG and whatever. So check it out if, if this sounds interesting to you. That's Operation Maccabee. All right, Tony. You ready to lighten things up a bit? Or not, and talk some Mombasa. Yes, sir, indeed. Mombasa, the 2015, uh, I guess it's really kind of an Essen release, maybe? Uh, oh, it absolutely is, yes. It's designed by Alexander Feaster, who's on a bit of a uh, of a ride right now with Brim Service, Isla Sky, Royal Goods, and several others. Clearly, since we're talking about this, this is his heaviest design. The uh, artist for this game is Clemens Franz, the incomparable Clemens Franz. The publisher is Eggert Spieler. And Pegasus Spiele, and in the United States, R&R Games. It's a two- to four-player game. It takes, uh, what, a couple hours, huh? Maybe a little more with four. Yeah, and, and considerably less uh, with two. And uh, let's see, here in the States, retail price is forty nine ninety nine. It sounds like this is supposed to be available now, but maybe isn't quite coming into distribution in the United States just yet. Should be around the corner, though. Well, let's see what's going on in Mombasa. Well, frankly, the players are European investors and companies that are exploiting the resources of Africa. And to do this, they're expanding the territorial holds of these various companies, increasing the stock value of the companies by doing so, and collecting for themselves small rewards. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong idea about the game. It's not really a stock game, per se. And stock holding is only one of the mechanics in this game that actually meshes together several mechanics. Stock holding, area expansion, worker placement, deck building, and hand management. 
So starting with a hand of nine cards, you're going to begin the game by selecting and playing three cards. Each player is going to select those cards in secret, and when all players have selected their cards, all of the selections will be revealed. From your nine cards, you're actually starting the game with three cards not in your hand and seated in the discard piles. More about, about that to come later, though. When you play your cards, here are your actions that are available on your turn. You can buy new cards from the central marketplace and add them into your hand. Or you can expand one company's land holdings by placing one or more of the little wooden trading posts onto the map from the company display. And when you do this, you could be revealing little coin icons underneath the trading post printed on the board, and each revealed coin contributes to the current value per share of that company. You can also advance, advance your investment in one or more companies. Now, you don't actually buy shares. You see, as you move along the company track, it's called, for each company, you pass spaces that indicate how many shares you might own, two, three, five, eight, etc., and as you do so, you're going to unlock exclusive bonuses and worker placement spaces that are available only to the players that have attained certain levels of investment in those companies. Another option on your turn is to advance your marker along the diamond track on your player board. And diamonds, they're an important way to gain some victory points. And they can also unlock the ability to play another card per turn. If you recall, I just said you could play three cards a turn getting your diamonds to a certain point, now you can play four cards per turn. And hey, when you play more cards, you've got a chance of having you know, more or richer actions than your competitors, so it's a good thing. You can also advance your marker along the bookkeeping track on your player board. And bookkeeping points also are an important source of, uh, of victory conditions. And they can be more difficult to accomplish than your diamond track points because... To gain on this track, you actually need to have other certain cards in play. And sometimes it's a, it's a hard balancing act. But in bookkeeping, you can also unlock the ability to play yet another card from your hand, giving you potentially five cards per turn. And when you get bonus tiles, potentially even more than that. Absolutely. You can also place one of your worker placement discs in a spot on the board or perhaps on a company track if you've advanced sufficiently far enough to earn that ability. You could place those to um, take specific actions from the board. Now, most of these spaces cost money. Some of these actions include things like becoming the first player, selling cards from your hand, think thinning your deck, um, for money, because money is an important concept in the game. Well, it's victory points. Absolutely. There are four, I think, pretty interesting spaces on the board that we're going to talk about more. One for each company for worker placement, these spaces. For example, there's one that says, hey, if I currently have the highest number of cotton cards in play, I and I alone can put my worker on this spot and, and take advantage of the uh, actions given to me. I mentioned earlier you're playing cards from your hand. This hand management aspect needs a little more detail. You see, every card that you play is discarded onto a different discard pile in your area. And each turn, you're going to collect one of those discard piles back into your hand. So this serves to do a couple things. One, it breaks up sets and combinations that you may have in your hand at any one time because those cards are always going to return to you in different combinations. So 
smart play and smart discarding will allow you to shape and create future combinations. Also, the ability to play that fourth and fifth card gained from the diamond and bookkeeping track is nice, but now you're dealing with four or five discard piles instead of just three. And of course, the game provides ways for you to add cards to your hand and remove cards from your hand as well. I mean, there is a, a solid hand management concept here. The length of the game is just seven rounds, so you'll get to play at least 21 cards plus any worker placements, to- any worker placement tokens that you may have from round to round. At the end of the game, you're going to add up the cash you have on hand, the value of your stock holdings, the points from your diamond and bookkeeping tracks. Consider all of these things money. Most money wins. All right. Let's rock on into reviewing the scalability of the game, sir. Well, uh, as far as how many times we've played and what we've experienced, I've played it now five times. I've played it twice at four, twice at three, and one reluctant play at two player. And you, sir? Uh, one reluctant play at two players, three at three, and one at four. Okay, cool. So as far as the scalability, I kind of want to hit on this a little bit later. So let's move on and uh, touch on the cardboard. Sounds good. Start with the Components and graphic design. I think that uh, the components in this game are, are pretty, gar- pretty darn good. The cards ha- are pretty good quality. They have a linen finish, your fetish. Yeah, absolutely. Cardboard stuff is pretty standard, nothing very thin. Yeah, solid solid Euro, what you would expect in, in a modern you know, quality production, I would say, at this point. I, I, did, I did have one beef, and I wanted to bring that up. And you actually have a, a counter to this beef, which I think is really cool. I have the the wood box edition, and some of the one pound coins are bigger than the others, and um, it's like they they cut the punch board for the larger five pound coins, but printed the smaller one pound coins on them. There's twelve of these things, and we're like, why the heck did they screw this up? And we figured out, or at least we think we figured out, is those are the coins that go on the bookkeeping track for bonus coins for basically the timer of the game so it, it makes sense i mean the fact that there are 12 so <laughs> it's just only the germans would engineer separate money for that parse portion of the game <laughs> that's the same value exactly. you know it, it is what's regularly used so um on that note the one player the first player marker it's a cardboard standee yeah it, come on now uh, we replaced, or, or you replaced it with a lead painted mini of a native African in traditional dress yeah. with a shield and all that. It was, I mean, obviously we did that, but yeah, that was pretty cool. That's, that's an awesome first player marker. So, um, not typical Clemens Franz artwork. Like you don't look at this and say, oh, obviously this is Clemens Franz. No, because you know, you think the Agricola artwork and all that, and it's, it's really not like that at all. So when when you wrote down when we were uh, in the Aura outline, you said Clemens Franz was the artist. I actually went and double checked that. I was like, really? Because it doesn't look yeah. like him. So something I thought interesting. Uh, some of the graphic design choices could have been a little bit clearer on the share tracks, but I will say that there is a very clear explanation of each of those share tracks and what the special abilities do mm-hmm. uh, in the back of the rule book. So once you learn that, I think you're fine unless. You know, after 
four months you haven't played the game, then maybe you would have to go and relook sure. at that. But otherwise, I think that was fine. I'm kind of bummed that the wooden box edition is German only, and currently it's the only way to get the extra share track. Uh, and the only difference between the regular edition and the wooden box edition or collector's edition, whatever, is that wooden box and that extra share track. Right. So I figure, point that out. When I when I got that, um, there were no English translations for the rules for those tracks either. So I had to like translate it myself. <laughs> and that was a real pain in the butt. Um, but when I was prepping for the show, I noticed that Nicholas made a translation too. And I'm I'm happy to report that our translations agree. Uh, well, that's good. Yeah, I saw he that. He could have done so it sooner. Was, Nicholas. It was good. So, moving on to rule book clarity and quality. You started by run, reading the rule book, so you, you lead this, sir. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was fine. The first time we played the game was when Nicholas brought it over when he visited Denver. And oh, that's right. And we kind of got half-taught from his memory of his Essen play, and we kind of half-read the rules on our iPads because we only had the German rules. Uh, yeah, we made it through pretty good, just a couple of minor mistakes that we made. Um, and then I, you know, when I acquired the game, I read the rules, and I, I felt I easily understood everything they were trying to convey. So no problems for me. Cool. And I only read the rule book after you taught us the game. Um, so I didn't have to learn from the rule book. I thought there were plenty of illustrated examples where they were needed. It was laid out well, no major issues. And I'll be honest, we have not had to refer online to any rules questions. Everything that we've had has been in the rule book, which is always a good sign. And one thing I wanted to touch on here, I thought it was really a nice touch that at the begin in the beginning of the rule book is this uh, the designer or publisher somebody has written and quote chartered companies were associations formed with the purpose of exploration trade and colonization which links them inextricably to a very dark chapter in human history global colonialism. This period lasted roughly from the 15th century to the middle of the 20th century and is associated with exploitation and slavery. If you want to learn more about the underlying history, we recommend the following read, The History of Modern Africa, 1800 to the Present by Richard J. Reed, etc., etc. So I thought that was cool that they, they didn't shy away from the fact that what this is, I mean... It doesn't feel like it when you're in the game. No. There's nothing. There's nothing dark about this game whatsoever. Uh, but I thought that was just a nice touch that they that they did. They didn't shy away from it. Agreed. So uh, let's see what makes this game medium. Yeah, agreed. I think. Okay. What, uh, All right. What end of medium? The middle of medium. Um. Light end, uh, heavy end? No, not light end to me. I, I, I'd say solid, medium, maybe trending a little on the heavier side. But yeah, we'll just call it medium, I think. Yeah, sounds good. I just wrote uh, not the lighter end. So yeah, somewhere yeah, there middle or north, right? <laughs> so uh, let's see, the rules complexity in this game. I, I, I really don't feel there's much complexity in the rules here. I, I agree. Just nothing really difficult. Lots of choices, but nothing stands out. Uh, making this game more than a solid medium weight game based on the rules complexity. I agree. What about your thoughts on planning required to execute? 
You know, and this is a tricky one because I feel like it's entirely dependent on the strategy that you choose to employ in a given game. Mm -hmm. There are some that are really, really tactical and then there are other strategies that are, you know, are going to require more long-term planning. But some of them are very, very tactical. So both, you know, okay. I, what do you think? I, I think that whatever strategy you're, you're going for, that the planning really revolves around the, the hand management. And it's like, what card should I play this round? Where am I going to discard them? Which pile am I putting them in? When I play them, um, which pile should I put back into my hand for next round or the round after if there's enough cards there? I remember like playing on Saturday where I did some serious AP on the math of the cards. And you, got, oh, you yeah, guys we're, were giving we're me. We're going to get there. Yeah, you guys were giving me serious hell. But I mean, that was, so. that's where I think the planning is. It's really about uh, getting the right cards in play at the right time and the right discard stacks to execute whatever strategy you're going for. Luck and random factors? Uh, as far as I could count, there are two two things where there's some amount of randomness. There's the goods cards or the cards yeah. that come out. Comes out they're, somewhat, they're somewhat random because they are seated in certain order of deck. There's an A through E deck. Mm-hmm. And just the order of what comes out when, there's the randomness of that. And then what potentially could be the biggest random factor in the game are those bookkeeping tiles uh, oh. they can have you know a fairly fairly impactful amount on gameplay if anybody's focusing on the on the bookkeeping track see i think i think the biggest random factor is which of the 10 company tracks which four will be in play because that's seriously going to affect various strategies True, but that's also pre-game, so at least it's not affecting you once you're sure, in the game. Sure, sure it, but absolutely. So with uh, only seven turns, I don't, I don't feel like game length has any impact on the weight here. Do you? No, no, it's 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 exactly what it should be. I feel like. So I'm curious as to your answer for this one, then, because um, you struggled. Admittedly, you were saying the first couple times you played. Uh, how long does it take to get it? To well, there's two answers to this. Mechanically, really quick, because the rules get out of the way, and you're off to lament how poorly you play. So the rules get out of the way quick. Um, but to be reasonably proficient, it's multiple plays, and even then, I feel like it's multiple plays trying out the same strategy. So, like, if I'm going to focus on the bookkeeping track and do some investing as well, and just focus on that. It's going to take me two or three plays to be even moderately decent at it. And that's not even talking about then we move on. Okay, I'm going to try and work on the diamond tracks. These games, that's going to take you a couple plays to get, you know, moderately not, you know, making huge mistakes. No, you're still going to make the mistakes. (laughs) But just to be competitive, I'm saying, you know, against decent players. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I I think that um, it certainly takes a play or two to figure out how to manipulate the cards and which ones are important to which strategy. Then you have to like go try some different strategies. Yeah, rules get out of the way quick, but learning to be good at the game, whew, still, I'm still working on that. Gotcha. I do want to change things up on you a little bit here, and um, let's talk about what makes the game enjoyable and why, but let's talk about this 
in a kind of mechanic by mechanic or area of the game by area of the game manner. No, I did. I dig the way you laid this out. Cool. I think this will be cool. Let's start with that uh, diamond track. I think that it's pretty easy to gain points here. The definite prime mover along this track is going to be playing exploration cards to get the companies to own mines and then getting the diamond merchant cards that will be played that will take advantage of how many mines your company owns. And there's going to be a bit of an ebb and flow of what a company owns on the map as players may be more or less aggressive and growing and shrinking various companies. And that can affect your diamond track a little bit, perhaps if there's a uh, ebb before you get a chance to play that diamond merchant card. Yep, and there also is going to come into play which company uh, share track is out. There is one that one, one or two, one, I think just one, that has uh, you're going to get bonus diamonds, you know, if you oh, yes, yeah. at a certain point of that. I'll be honest though, I haven't messed much with the diamond track uh, in my five plays. Um, I've really tried to focus on the on a lot of the other things. So sure. I, I can't speak too much. It just... Just looking at it, though, and seeing other people playing it, it seems like, I don't want to call it easy, but I feel like it's an easier path, a a, a path of lesser resistance to gain income in that respect. Yeah. Compared to some of the others, I'm saying. In one of the games, I focused on the diamond track to the exclusion of the bookkeeping track, for example. And it's certainly easier to move up it. But there's more spaces on it, so it it's kind of balanced in that manner where it's easier to move up it, but you have to move further to get uh, the big points. I hadn't noticed that, I'll be honest. So that negates something I have later. Cool, awesome. All right, moving on. <laughs> so let's talk about that bookkeeping track because uh, this bad boy's a little harder. Yeah, it's it, in my opinion, it's the toughest way to earn money, yet it's the most satisfying If you're kind of a masochist in that respect, like I am, it requires not only multiple specific cards, but also a whole lot of planning of when to spend book points, which book tiles to acquire, and where to place them on your track to make the best use of them and not waste money, uh, you know, either building over them or completely just turning them over and negating them for a couple of bucks, which is totally wasteful. Absolutely. And then um, I I feel like you do get a definite sense of accomplishment, though, when you uh, make some good progress on that track. Absolutely. Um, I feel like it's a completely viable path, but not to the exclusion of everything else. Right. I, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Tell me what you think. So having talked about the diamond tracks now and the bookkeeping track, I feel like either of those, it's okay to exclude one for the other for of those two. But I don't feel like you can exclude the other thing, which we're about to get into, which is the company tracks. What do you think about that as far as those? Yeah. Um, one game I... Did only the diamond tra- track, meaning I, I sold my bookkeeper card and did no books, and I, uh, I did not win that game, but I came in second. Of course, it was a two-player game. So, <laughs> um, and then uh, another time, I focused a lot on the bookkeeping track and did not do 
squat on the diamond track and uh, and won that game. But in both cases, you can't ignore the company track. And in the time where I um, did the diamonds and still lost the game, I felt like I I lost the game not because I didn't do bookkeeping, but because I didn't keep up on the company tracks. Okay, so so you can do it to the exclusion of either the diamond or bookkeeping track. In our experience, in I our think so. five plays or so, but ne- only those two can so, be excluded. Yeah, which is a perfect segue into the company tracks because they're pretty darn important. You're going to get a lot of points here. Right. Um, it's kind of a slick but very Euro-y, it feels like, implementation of a way to do share acquisition. Yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, okay, there are there are hardcore economic games to where, you know, you take something like Arkwright or an 18xx or whatever, and you actually get the shares, and there's no incremental growing of the shares. It's just, I'll take a share. Right. Or I buy a share. Whereas this, there's actually a track, and there's a lot of spaces in between the, you know, acquiring those shares, and it right. just feels very euroy and i don't mean that as a as a as a slam to the game cuz i think it works perfectly fine it's just different yeah i think it's a very unique take actually on stock ownership in games i don't know of another game that does ownership this way so what do you mean by ownership this way exactly well there's 10 different tracks potentially in the game any, right, there's... any four of which will be in play. Okay. Right? And each track is completely different from another. So one track might offer some worker placement spots. One track might offer um, some uh, action bonuses, an extra point of this or that, right? Right. Some tracks require a $5 payment at some point. Some tracks require... A $10 payment at some point. Some tracks don't require the five. Some tracks pay dividends here and here, and some pay dividends at different places, and the numbers are all different too. The track lengths are pretty much the same, but at the end of this one, I own eight shares, and by the end of this one, I own 10. At the end of this one, I own, you know, it's that every one of them is, is very, very unique with different waypoints and benefits along the way. And you... We're talking about, oh, to to get over this hump, you have to pay out $5 or $10 or whatever. And at first, when I saw that, I was like, I don't get that. I don't understand at all, like thematically, why that, why you have to do that. Yeah. And you had pointed out that it's it's capitalization in the company. Well, you know, or, I, I don't know. It's, it certainly seems like a game mechanic, but it's, but it's one that works and it's one that's cool. But I, maybe you're... You're buying on margin and they call or something. Who knows, right? right? No, that, <laughs> yeah. no, no, that made sense to me when you explained it that way. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay, I could see that. But it basically means, hey, you want the good perks, you better pony up some cash. So, but anyway, but I think that's, that's what I think is unique, the way these tracks work, that they're all different and they do different things in the context of the game. I, like you said – Arkwright or, you know, 1849, whatever, right? It's like, all right, I'll buy a share. I'll buy a share. I'll sell the share. And there's no selling in this game either, right? It's like once you've got to a certain point, and there doesn't need to be. Um, but, yeah, I don't know of any game that does this mechanic. Agreed. And I do find it funny that uh, the exploration uh, or the area expansion 
actually ties into the share value directly. And there are times to where you can basically bet on the come that you can oh, invest yeah. you can invest in a company that doesn't have any expansion done yet and that may or may not come back to bite you because I, I more than once I've had shares of stock that's worth exactly zero dollars. Yeah, same here. But I think that's really um, a neat mechanic, a neat aspect of the mechanic and thematic too, where as the company grows, its share value grows. Which makes the company total contracts, sense. so does its share price. So yeah, so speaking of that area expansion, speaking of that area expansion, it's early it, it's easy early on because for every expansion point, you can pretty much go out there and, and go do what you want and go where you want. But as you as the game progresses and the companies have kind of staked out their ground in, you know, kind of not in the four corners of the continent, but it's kind of where they come from. Yeah. And then you have to go in later on and have to not only expand into those areas, but then displace existing companies. Your your exploration that you use is reduced in value the later on in the game that it goes because of that. Because you have to pay extra exploration to go not as far as you would have because you have to get rid of the other companies. Yes. I, and I, I think... I, I think that's very cool, and and I hate it when it. Well, you know, you always hate it, but I hate it when the company I'm invested in gets contracted. You know, it's like, I, like you said, we've ended up with uh, worthless shares, man. Right, and so, but I I like that whoever displaces the company also chooses. Do I play? Do I displace it onto a spot that reduces the share value? Or not. It all depends on how invested I am in that. You know, well, that's I mean? the thing. There, the the this mechanic uh, affords emerging alliances between the players. So, like, you know, if player A and player C are investing heavily in the Mombasa company, hey, other players, that might be something to get in on, or maybe maybe not. You might want to be fighting against that. And so, if you and I both have a lot of shares of a certain company. I'm certainly not going to be looking to beat up that company on the map. Neither are you. But at the same time, if you and I are both invested equally, I'm. I mean, it's it's almost like a, a net zero loss or gain. I might actually go and expand a different company that I have. I have one share of that you guys have no shares of. Because I'm the only one benefiting from that instead of you and I both benefiting. And I don't want that because even though I'm only gaining a little bit, I'm gaining a little bit across all the other players. And if you get too far ahead of me on a particular track, for example, I, if I reduce the share value, it hurts you more than it hurts me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. It is. I, I, I do really, really like how that area expansion really ties into the share value, which totally makes sense. The one thing that kind of weirds me out a little bit, and I, I get it, it's a game mechanic and it works, blah, blah, blah. But like the 18XX side of me thinks of companies as separate entities. So it's a little weird that I put a house out there and I get a diamond point on my track, <laughs> even though it was the company oh, that right, expanded. Right. You know, the, I get money. The company expanded and I got money or, you know, but, hey, it's game mechanic. It works wonderful. But sometimes, at first, like, my head was like, what's going on here? Yeah, explain it to me, like, the why. <laughs> right. right. 
So uh, deck building and hand management, that is a huge part of this game. I didn't notice, is it really? Yeah, yeah. Did you see the cards? Oh, right. <laughs> no, it's it's I really think it's it's genius and a serious brain burn that I'm still working on how to get right because you have to plan multiple turns ahead based on whatever strategy you're trying to focus on. I mean, every single card, not only what you play, but where you play it matters. I feel like this one's unique, too. This mechanic of I'm dealing with three to five different discard piles. There may be others out there, but I'm unaware of them. Um, And it feels new to me. Yeah. And I I think it's it's fantastic. because and, And the kicker, the thing that really makes this go, in my opinion, is... Okay, on my turn, I play out my three cards. Say early on in the game, I haven't expanded, so I only have three three piles. So I play my three cards out. The kicker is I have to pick up a pile of discards before the card I just played goes right. into it. So when I play this card, this two banana or this one exploration or whatever it is, I can't. I I. It is so hard for me to remember. That, okay, I don't get this card if I pick up that middle stack. I'm not going to get the two bananas that I just played, but I need those two bananas in that stack before I pick it up. Okay, so let's change plans. So now I have to pick up either the first or the third discard pile because then the two bananas will go up into the discard. And then next turn, I can pick up that stack, that that discard stack and then I can do what it is that I needed to do on this turn but now am I potentially one turn behind where I needed to be to be able to get all that money come the end of the game right and that's awesome I love that brain burn it's very very it gives me the same feel as the whole you have to buy the plans after you build step in craftsman it's that same whole forcing you to plan a turn further ahead than you really think you have to. And I love that. Indeed. And I, I have uh, a, a similar aspect of that that I've outthought myself on a couple times is I've trimmed my deck. My, I've trimmed my hand and also acquired the ability to play a fourth or a fifth card. And suddenly I don't have enough cards to take advantage of that. So it's there's this weird <laughs> thing where like – as you're deck building, you're like, oh, i got to get this junky card out of my hand. But I don't know, man. <laughs> you, can be, you can, like, screw yourself over if you get too aggressive on the trimming, and I've done that. One other thing, kind of in that same vein, not necessarily thinning the deck, but early on, let's say you have multiple banana cards, to go back to those, or coffee cards. You have a two coffee and a one coffee that you combined, you have three coffee. Awesome, that's great. All right, because three is a lot more powerful than two. However, when you do the discards, they now go into different discard piles. So when you pick them up, you're only picking up one of those. So now that, that powerful move you had is at least two turns away to be able to rejoin those cards again. And again, that whole that goes back to that whole planning and how how hard that is in a good way. Indeed. The last thing for me on the card play is the marketplace for cards. So there's there's columns of cards on the board. 
and um, each each of those spots has a little plus one, plus two, or whatever to that's going to add to the price of the card, and the, each card has a price printed on it. So a card that's got a price of two that's in a a slot in the marketplace that says plus one will cost you three money or three goods, um, goods right. depending on what you're doing in that particular turn to buy. And so the card prices are never all, are never going to be the same from round to round to game to game because cards are going to shift or they're or in a different game. They're going to be in different places and everything. So it's there's a a variable you know value on all the different cards too. And I, it, I think that's kind of cool. It feels like a living market in that respect. That they mm. they're constantly shifting, they're constantly changing. The prices are, even though you and I aren't aren't uh, causing those shifts uh, in a sense that there's no market that we're driving. You yeah. know the you know the values of bananas are up because there's a shortage. <laughs> it's nothing like that. Right. But even so, I feel like it's a, it's a pretty clever way to keep the prices from fluctuating too much but at the same time fluctuating yeah. some to where they're not stagnant it's abstracted very well right so the last area to specifically call out then we'll talk about some other things is something near and dear to our hearts little worker placement or action selection right so there's so, the, the board and the, and the company tracks give places to put your workers right yeah, definitely lots of potential fighting for certain spots. Uh, you know, like there there was a one of the company tracks that we discovered in our last couple games uh, allows extra bumps to different company shares. Yeah. And that in turn can cause a lot of fighting over the fir- who's going to be first player because there's only one spot until you get further up the track where there's a second one available. But if you're both only qualifying for that first spot, you better get there first, or I will. And then if I go first, then you better take the first player marker from me so that you can get there first next time. And I, yeah, I absolutely love that. I think that's my favorite company track. I I think mine too. (laughs) I I agree. That and the uh, bonus exploration is is a really good one too. I mean, none of them, none of them suck. Yeah, it's just depending on what you're trying to do, which ones you're going to focus on. You're always wanting, or at least I am, always wanting or desperately needing one or two more workers every time. That's a hallmark of a good thing, I think. Yeah, and interestingly, we've never played with a company track that allows you to get more workers. I don't know what the hell our deal. I, I played. Uh, oh, did we you? Played, yeah, we played a uh, a three player game of it once, and it completely got ignored. Which really, yeah, that which was really weird. Like, if I knew then what I know now, I probably would have gone yeah, up sure. that track more. <laughs> I like that though. The many of the worker placement spots require money because for me, often in this game, it's easier to uh, spend the money than acquire it. Welcome to life, right? <laughs> welcome, welcome to life. That's right. And I really dig those uh, majority bonus spots. I, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, that that is so cool. It, it's so slick. So, say we'll talk uh, Max Coffee spot. If I played two coffee and you played two coffee and nobody else has played two coffee, they played one or none. 
neither of us qualify to use that spot. Nobody does. Because neither of us have the most coffee. Right. And so then it becomes a bit of a waiting game and stalling. And what can I do that isn't that so that I can outweigh you so that you spend your coffee either to move up uh, company share tracks or to purchase market cards, use that coffee to do that. So if you've spent it now, all of a sudden I am the majority uh, guy with the most coffee out there. And now I can use that as a, uh, without spending the coffee itself, just using one of my worker tokens to advance on whatever track that that is for coffee. And I think that's awesome. I love whenever you are forced to try and stall or wait out your opponent by trying to manipulate both what you're doing as well as trying to force your opponent into doing other things that he doesn't want to do right now. But if you really want to use that spot, you have to. And I think that's just delicious. And of course that has risk, right? Because if I get tired of waiting, then I might use my coffee to buy that card. Now you, you've got the bonus of that other spot, but you didn't get that card you may have coveted or, or whatever. So I, there's a risk balancing proposition there in the sandbagging. So what other things do, uh, do you like about the game? So earlier here, I, when we were going to talk scalability, I said we I wanted to hit on that a little bit later because let's face it both you and I were highly reluctant to play this two player correct correct gotta say the scaling was great um, yes we uh, we both were like I said reluctant to play it two player but we felt we needed to for the full scope of the review so we did so and I, and and I was really opposed to it because I was thinking man there won't be. These emerging alliances, the board play probably won't be very dynamic. And you were like, hey, let's do it. Right. Just, you know, hey, we'll, we'll fight through it. No big deal. And kind of find out that we really dug it. And, you know, you, you, you feel like you would lose something for the reasons that you just said. But you really don't. The game is different. And the turns move so fast. Just lightning fast. So I, I did feel that there were obviously less emerging alliances with only two players and things. Sure. But I, but I felt like the competition in the game really ratcheted it up and, and fully replaced that and gave us a really great dynamic experience. So let me ask you this. At seven rounds, is the game, uh, is the game too short? I've heard that. That's all I'm asking. I, I really? think it's just right. It, it makes the game kind of tight. Yeah, I now I, I mean it, in the two-player game it moves so amazingly fast. Yeah. Uh, just your turns are like, okay, I went. Oh, you're ready already? I'm. I haven't thought through my next action. Wait, um, <laughs> what was I doing? Not, not the problem in the four-player game, or or, right. or in the three for that matter. But no, I feel like seven rounds has felt just perfect. To be honest yeah, with cool. you, cool. Right on. I like it. I, I do too. So what about the flip side of the coin? Are there any aspects of the gameplay that aren't uh, completely enthralling? Well, um, I have a few here. Uh, so one of which you may have kind of shot down already, but we'll hit on that in a minute. Uh, so the biggest thing for me here is the bonus tile spots. and the worker placement ones. 
Yeah, the for the bonus tiles for the diamond merchant and the extra good and the extra bookkeeper and, and whatever and the explore, extra exploration, they're useless the last round. They 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 because you don't when you take that spot you're reserving that tile for use in the next round. Yeah, and there's no next there round no in next the seventh round. round, and so it not only tightens the game up artificially because there are now all of a sudden four less spots from which to choose from but it also takes those things away when arguably you may need them the most here towards the end of the game so we we kind of toyed with the idea of you know do we in the last round when you go there do you get to take the action immediately or maybe if you go there in the last round and somebody has taken that tile that you want you have to actually wait to actually get access to that tile even though you've taken the spot you have to wait for them to use it first and then once they've used it then you can use it that turn to try because and- they they took it in the previous round right and so you can't take it from them they they earned it already but we, we wonder if there was some way to make that viable or useful or just didn't just fall apart there at the end. So that was that that really stuck in my craw. I, well, just, we that did really that the last me. game. We played with that rule you just talked about. Right. Where you, you pretty much invented it right there at the tables. Like, all right, so if this last round, so if you go here, you can get that t- tile after that other player uses it. Right. And I think it just makes that a more complete action. You know what I mean? I, I don't like the idea that, oh, it's the last round. Therefore, these spots are just completely blocked off for no reason. Yeah, they're useless. Right. So yeah. that that, yeah. that I liked me. it. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Um, and obviously, there's no fleshing out of this whatsoever yet. And no. it might, you know, maybe we've read something. I don't know. But it just, that, that really bugged me. Um Potential downtime in a four-player game, not only during turns but also during uh, placement of the cards. So why don't why <laughs> yeah. don't you speak to this? You know about it really, really, really well, Mister Seven Minutes. Uh, yeah, that last game was. <laughs> I definitely AP'd and did a lot of math on. Okay, I can play this. I was I was literally thinking this turn, next turn, and the one after. Looking at cards, going. I mean, it was just. That can happen. I've never seen you do that before. Not yeah. that long. Yeah, it was uh, it was rough. Yeah, but, I mean it wasn't it wasn't the norm for me. But like at that sure. point in that time, I was like, all right, I'm literally thinking about where I'm placing this card for three turns from now, or two turns from now, rather. So which was, yeah, which definitely can lead to some AP for AP prone players is and, yeah. and you're not even that. So no. that's something to be aware of. Um the last thing that I have here is the bookkeeping track. It might be disproportionate compared to the other things that reward similarly, but it, you have to work so incredibly hard on the bookkeeping track whereas there's nothing else in this game that you have to work so hard at to make be successful in yet it still rewards the same amount of points as the much simpler diamond track and is that a problem i'm not saying it is i'm just wondering yeah is it well the spaces are uh fewer and far between on the scoring so you'll get your points quicker than you would on the diamond track 
But yes, you are working harder for each base. And then you can get some little bonuses from accomplishing some of the tiles on the bookkeeping track. I mean, they're not earth-shattering bonuses, but they're better than a poke in the eye. When when money's tight, that extra buck or two bucks or three bucks (laughs) can be a huge boon. So, but no, it's something that I, you know, that, that, that I noticed that I didn't know if it's an issue, but I figure I'd at least bring it up. Right on. All right, let's go summaries. I'll go first this time. I think that Mombasa implements a very cool variation on a stock holding mechanic. I'm, I'm actually pretty impressed by it, and I think it may be unique to the game. I also think that deck building, hand building, hand management mechanic is unique to this game too, and quite impressive as well. Many people have said, and I am one of them, that they've enjoyed the game much more on the second and subsequent plays, including uh, Dave E. in the guild, and he says he's heard that from other players. So I think that suggests some positive notions about the game. I would just keep it short and say, do yourself a favor, guys, and try this game. And lastly, uh, thank you, Nils, for the incredible surprise of this game. Just very generous, highly appreciated. That was cool of him. My rating for the game is... A five. All right. I wouldn't I think the thing the thing that tips it to a five from a four to me is I just feel like that, that stock and deck mechanics are, are unique and and I like seeing new, fresh, unique things. Let me I think a- that carries a lot. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like a year from now that you'll still be wanting to play this game? Uh yeah. I think so because I mean that those mechanics those are the for me that makes it not just another game. The rest of the game is it's good, it's all right, it's whatever, but those unique mechanics are are fresh and cool. All right. Cool. Good stuff. Um so for my summary pretty much echoes what you said in a sense that I really dig new and exciting mechanics and I like to see them integrated well with other tried and true mechanics. And I think that we have that here in the case of Mombasa. There's nothing super ZOMG standout that just mind-blowing that I think I'm going to be, you know, dreaming about after I get done playing the game. But not every game has to have that to be a really, really good game. So with that said... Go out, like you said, and and try the game and uh, enjoy it. And I was really ho-hum about the game after the first play. But I was like, you know, there might be something here. Let me give it another shot. And I did. And it just keeps getting better as I play more. And couple that with the fact that the two-player game was honestly as good as it was. It was surprisingly really good i could see this hanging out in the collection for a number of years not just a number of weeks or months so what's your uh, rating so so real quick uh rate on a one to six scale and you rated it a five which is you know a terrific great game one that you would actively go out and buy if you didn't know if nils wasn't as awesome as he was so for me um I think that's the difference between a four and a five. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And for that reason, I would also give this a five. The fact that 
a year, maybe even two years down the road, do I see myself breaking out Mombasa and giving it a, a, you know, another player or two? Absolutely, I, I could see that. A four? A four, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, it's a game. You know, it, it's good, but right. nah. But a five, yeah, I could see myself doing that. And that makes sense. So that, right in a nutshell, makes it a five. That's Mombasa, guys. All right, let's uh, let's bring this home. All righty. So, ways to get a hold of us on Twitter at Heavy Cardboard, Facebook Heavy Cardboard, email us contact at Heavy Cardboard. We love hearing from you guys. Our website is heavycardboard.com, and last and certainly not least, our BGG Guild is number two zero four four. Come join the discussion, y'all. Heavy Cardboard thanks Game Surplus again for their sponsorship of our show. Fantastic people, great inventory of games. Check out their inventory at www.gamesurplus.com. You can drop Felman Amos an email at games at gamesurplus.com. But whatever you do, tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. All right, so uh, our last episode of 2015 is in the books, huh? It is. It's on to January. Yeah. What are we doing in January? I'm really, really excited about this, dude. I actually started working on that episode today. So we've decided that, especially with the holidays and you having 97 different people over to your house yes. over the next course of the next couple of weeks, you're not going to be have a whole lot of time for gaming. So we figure this would be a really good time for us to break out maybe a top li- you know, a list. Because God knows everybody loves lists. So well, what we've decided... Okay, everybody not named Tony loves lists. That's right. How's that? So begrudgingly, I appreciate, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate you willing to do this. So what we're doing is we're going to do our individual top 50 games of all time in the next episode. And how we're going to do this, because Tony hates lists in and of themselves, he refuses to rate on a 1 to 50 line. So we're going to take the top 20 and do a countdown for those, but the other 30 we're just going to do alphabetical. So that was the happy medium that I could get them to agree with. So if you don't like it, hey, let us know on Twitter or in the guild or email us and try and convince Tony why he should number them 1 to 50. Please? Good luck. <laughs> it's a losing fight, but I, I, I want to hear you guys try and I mean, you know, how, how do you determine 46 from 47? I mean. You no, know, and I, I get that. I, I do. Yeah. Um, but Which I child think, of yours do you like the most? <laughs> <laughs> so, as I was saying, real quick, uh, I went through all the games that I've played, right, that I've logged. And right. I have on here, like, 87 games that I could think could make a top 50. Yeah. So that means I got to cut out 37 of these? Are you kidding me? How, dude? This is insane. Well, we know that uh, your top 50 is at least 100 long, so. Oh, yeah, that's standard. <laughs> that's why I started now for something that's going on in a few weeks. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right, man. Well, good time. Oh, and should we let hey, him know? If I ask you for a quarter, I'm getting a dollar. Oh, absolutely. So it works in your benefit, right? <laughs> so, um, Indeed. So I'm curious. One last thing, guys and gals. Uh, this is the first time that we are recording on two different microphones. We we got a second mic. And this is the also the first time that we are recording in separate locations. 
So Tony's at his house, I'm at mine. We're both in our respective offices. So let us know if you can tell a difference audio-wise, if it makes a difference one way or the other, good, bad. Let us know. Give us feedback. We need to hear this so we know what to work on, please. And with that, I say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and be safe out there, especially come amateur night and in, in New Year's. So be careful out there. Yeah. Right on. Merry Christmas, everybody. See you guys uh, 2016.